Today, mom's survey of more than 7,000 U.S. mothers revealed the average mom rates her stress level at an 8.5 out of 10. What got them so stressed? For 46% of moms, husbands are a bigger source of stress than kids. Often moms complain the fathers of their children are more like big kids than equal partners. Not in this church. Mom's stress is fundamentally different than dad's stress, women say, and the inability to see eye to eye with their husband can lead to, you guessed it, more stress. Add to mom's stress about their future, their stress about the day-to-day work of parenting, which moms say falls largely on them. According to the survey, mothers stress most about not having enough time in the day to do everything that needs to be done. Not a problem for us, right? Three-quarters of moms with husbands say they do most of the parenting and household duties. One in five moms say not having enough help from their spouse is a major source of daily stress. Meanwhile, dads feel like they're doing more than ever with their kids and not getting any credit. 2012 Today Moms survey of 1,500 fathers found that two-thirds of dads say they want what they want most from their spouse is just a little verbal acknowledgement. Now add to that another survey I saw this week of apparently the same 7,000 mothers 42% say they sometimes suffer from Pinterest stress. This is the worry that they're not crafty or creative enough. Symptoms include staying up till 3 a.m., clicking through photos of exquisite handmade birthday party favors, even though you'll end up buying yours at the dollar store, (laughs) or sobbing quietly into a burnt mess of expensive ingredients that were supposed to be adorable buddy cookies for the school bake sale. The woman quoted said, we have a hard time enjoying our own experiences because we feel it's not worthy of this invisible judge. It's so easy to get depressed. You start to feel like your entire life has to be like a magazine all the time. Aiming for magazine or Pinterest-worthy perfection all the time is an impossible goal for everyone, and especially when you have kids. And striving for perfection is a major source of stress for moms. One in four mothers say the pressure they put on themselves to be perfect is a top cause of stress. You can't blame it on your mom because 75% report the pressure they put on themselves is worse than any pressure or judgment they get from their moms. Isn't that exciting this morning? I never knew about Pinterest stress till this week. In our study this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you take your Bibles, let's study God's Word for a few moments this morning. We're going to talk about a woman who experienced a lot of stress and a lot of disappointment and a lot of sadness. And it wasn't because of Pinterest. She had a lot of stress and anxiety and sadness and disappointment because of her life circumstance and because of those who were around her. And yet this morning she stands as a paragon of faith and somebody who really surrendered her heart to the Lord. Hannah's personal sadness was that she couldn't have children. And that was compounded by the fact that a member of her own family ridiculed her about it every day and made her life awful and made her life sad through a very, very harsh interpersonal attack. Now, that would be enough to put most of us under the carpet, and for Hannah, it really was no different. This was the profound pain of her life. It was the number one source of grief, the number one source of sadness for her, and it gripped her. It encompassed her whole soul. It it was felt through every fiber of her body. And yet, this study this morning is not depressing. In fact, it's just the opposite. This study is a testament to the freedom and satisfaction of completely surrendering ourselves to the Lord. 
even in the midst of those most difficult and harsh and sad circumstances. And it's about the incredible fact of God's mercy and God's provision in our lives. We've already celebrated at that table of the Lord about God's mercy and provision in our lives, which is so profound that it's literally changed our soul forever. And yet, it doesn't stop at the cross and the empty tomb. It doesn't stop at the transformation that God has brought in our lives. It continues on every single day. God's grace is sufficient for us every day. His mercy is new every morning. He never fails us or ever forsakes us ever. And we can keep adding demonstrative adjectives and adverbs to it because the love of God and the mercy of God never stops. So even in our worst circumstances, even in our times of greatest heartache and greatest pain, God is still working and teaching us and ministering to us and how he works give us, gives us confidence to yield ourselves to him and to trust him and have confidence in him. Now this is our text, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read quite a bit here down to verse 20. I'll try to read it quickly because our time is short. But hopefully you know this story a little bit. If you don't, the Spirit will help us understand it. Now there was a certain man from Ramathion Zophon from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohiam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. There's the whole issue right there in verse 2. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli was the high priest, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Here's the statement where men don't get it. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look upon the infliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then will I give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor will never come on his head. Then it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, how long would you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I've spoken until now of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli, verse 17, answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel Great your petition that you've asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to her home in Ramah. And Elka had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. 
came about in due time after Hannah conceived that she gave birth to a son and named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Now, we're not given a lot of background information about Hannah other than the fact that she lived in this place uh, in the hills country of Ephraim. The town that they lived in was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about halfway to the uh, Mediterranean Sea. This was a hill country uh, up uh, above Jerusalem, and she was married to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. One's name was Hannah, and the other's name was Peninnah. Now, there are two distinct truths that the Spirit establishes here that are far more important about where she grew up or where she lived or what her situation was like. The first thing we need to understand is that Hannah and her husband loved and worshipped the Lord. And the second thing we need to understand is that Hannah's husband, Elkanah, loved her very deeply. Now, the text doesn't tell us anything flashy about them. There's nothing profound about their lives. There's nothing distinctive that would cause us to say, wow, look at these people. They are incredible servants of God, and they're doing miracles, and God's speaking directly to them, and and, and anything else that we see many other times in Scripture. They're just average people. And I believe that's very intentional and very uh, noteworthy here because it shows the power of spiritual consistency and faithfulness to the Lord. One of the most interesting and, and I think sobering developments within Christianity over the last 20 to 30 years is the fact that there is an emphasis on churches and individuals, especially pastors, who are called influential because they're well-known and because the churches are so large. The bigger the church, the bigger the influence, the more campuses, the more books, the more followers on Twitter, the more you should be heard and the more your ministry model should be followed. Now, that's not to say that these men and women are not godly or that they're not worth hearing. Of course they are. But we've come into the cult of celebrity, and many times that can get kind of depressing to the rest of us because we're just average people living our lives and serving the Lord and going to church and tithing and, and, and ministering to children and, and doing whatever. We're just, we're just average Joes living here in Wisconsin. And yet this passage shows that even though you and I are average, that God honors faithfulness. These were regular people, not priests, not servants that did major works, not people hearing from the Lord, and yet they struggled with this life situation, and as they struggled, they stayed faithful to the Lord. They didn't waver in their commitment. They loved Him and served Him and worshipped Him, and those are vital qualities to have. Listen, spiritual consistency and faithfulness is very underrated. I'd rather have a church full of people who are spiritually consistent and faithful and love the Lord than a bunch of people walking around saying, look at all my gifts. Because spiritual consistency, staying close to the Lord, maturing, being reliable, trusting God, serving, being faithful, those, those are things that we don't talk about often enough. And the Lord loves that reliability. The Lord loves that passion of faith. He doesn't call us to popularity, and He doesn't call us to influence, and He doesn't call us to greatness. He calls us to love Him with all our heart and to serve Him faithfully. And when we do that, our influence 
will be profound. Notice that in the text, there is no question about the couple's character. This book, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, details all the kings and all the people of Israel that were inconsistent and that failed the Lord and worshiped false idols. And yet you have this couple, Elkanah and Hannah, and there's nothing special about them. And that should tell us something because they weren't spiritually inconsistent. They just trusted and served the Lord. The worshiping in Shiloh. Shiloh was important because it was the religious capital of Israel for 300 years before Jerusalem became that. And the tabernacle settled in Shiloh and was there for 360 years. They aren't shying away from worshiping the Lord publicly. And Elkanah has a soft spot for his wife. He's got two wives. We don't understand it. Let's not get caught up in that this morning. But we know that he loved Hannah. He had a deep affection for her. There was something about her that drew his heart in. He must have felt bad for her because she couldn't have children. He must have had sympathy, and we see that he tries to compensate for it by giving her a double portion of the sacrifice that they got to keep. But that didn't stop the other wife, Peninnah, from mocking her. And why Elkanah didn't say to her, you be quiet, you stop dealing with Hannah that way, you, you, stop, you stop ridiculing and mocking her, she can't help the fact that she can't have children, you, you cut it out. We never see him doing that. But he clearly saw that she took this personally. And she was tortured by it. She was hurt by it. And as loving as Elkanah was, he just couldn't understand her heart to have children. And he didn't understand the depth of her pain. Look at it. He he tries hard. He's like, what about me? Aren't I great? Aren't I worth ten sons? And she's just weeping. Yes, you're wonderful. but, But there's this hole in my heart. And we see this pain and this discomfort and this disappointment that Hannah felt. And I want to show it to you very quickly this morning in four areas. And I want to do that not to concentrate on the pain, but to concentrate on how we deal with pain and how God is sufficient and how he works in powerful ways in our lives when we really surrender to him. So let's look at the first sadness in her life. The first sadness was the obvious pain and heartache of being barren. Not only was she hurting in her heart because she couldn't have kids, but during that historical period, there were two stigmas attached to not having children. One was social and one was spiritual. In our culture now, it's almost a source of pride not to have kids. Well, I've got an intentional choice and I have power over my body and I'm going to just do what I want to do and children are responsibility and I'm not going to take that upon myself that would be too much. I've got things I want to do. But, but back then, it was untypical. Back then, you were expected to have children. And there was a lot of pressure to have children. And specifically, to have a boy. Girls in that culture were devalued. In some parts of the world, they still are. So the boy was what you wanted to have. You wanted to have a boy to carry on the family name. After that, didn't matter. Just so long as you had a boy. So Hannah's feeling this pressure of not having children and not having a son. And Elkanah has another wife and she's having children left and right and and she doesn't have it. But not only was there a social stigma, there was a spiritual stigma. Because in biblical times, if you didn't have children, it was viewed as punishment from the Lord. 
So not only does she have personal sadness, but now she has the constant speculation. Well, Hannah, what's going on in your life? Are you, uh, you have some secret sin that God's having to discipline you over? Maybe that's why you haven't had children. You know how snarky people are sometimes. Well, I guess you must have something in your past. Well, I guess there's something that, that we don't know about, but obviously the Lord is disciplining you and punishing you because you don't have any children. And in this crucible of people's opinions and the pressure of their expectations, it would be very easy for Hannah to become jaded toward the Lord and to let her emotions and her desires just just overwhelm her to the point of, of not relying on the Lord. But she's a godly woman. It shows in her prayer and it shows in her attitude, and she's humble. Look at the text. She's so sad, but she doesn't allow her personal pain to cause her to lash out at Peninnah. When we look at verse 6, we see that she provoked her bitterly to irritate her. We'll explain that in a minute. Year after year, every time they go to church, every time they went to the house of the Lord, there was Peninnah going, you don't have children. Can you imagine that? Never once in the text do we say, see Hannah saying, cut it out. Don't do that. That's mean. We don't see other people advocating for her, going to pen on, a, on the side and saying, listen, what are you doing? Why are you being harsh? Don't do that. To Hannah, she's a sweet woman. We never see Hannah responding. We never see her give in to the temptation to respond out of her pain rather than holiness. But she had this pain. Second, would you see, that the source of her pain and heartache was this other woman. She was being ridiculed, and there's no mercy. There's no empathy. In fact, she seizes the opportunity to introduce more pain into Hannah's life. As if she's not struggling enough, she, she piles on on top of it. Now, Penina has it all. She has the upper hand. She has children. She's been blessed with that. You would think there would be some measure of graciousness. Maybe she would say, well, well, would you like to, to spend some time? Would you like to maybe babysit? Do you want to go out with me to the, to the market? We can go together. You would think there would be some kind of empathy here, but instead it says in the text, look at it, verse 6, that she purposely provoked Hannah bitterly. The word there means to make her angry and demoralize her. And then it says that she irritated her. A very interesting word in the Hebrew. It's the word for thunder. The meaning there is that she had the complete intent to make Hannah tremble with fear and anxiety and sadness. So she would get angry and she would demoralize her and she would denigrate her and Hannah would start to tremble because she was so irritated in her soul. I really want you to get that picture this morning. This was not just meanness. This was not just a few harsh words. This was a relentless emotional torture to get her to be completely defeated. And it was happening within her own house. And it was happening year after year. There was nothing soft about it. Penina took a systematic approach to brutally oppress Hannah and to exacerbate her pain. Now, few of us have that kind of hostility in our lives, but we have moments. We have moments where we're debilitated, where, where somebody says something or somebody does something and it's painful. 
And you and I have probably learned over the years that spiritual principle that the attack is always the harshest when we're serving the Lord. The attack over the last month on our church, on our relationships, even this morning, has been harsh because we're serving the Lord and we're moving into this next phase of ministry. It's a very basic concept. Anytime you serve the Lord, the attack is going to be harsher. But that shouldn't pull us away from the Lord and it shouldn't demoralize us. It should make us more and more determined we're going to serve the Lord. If the devil hates it, it must be good. If the devil's going to attack it, then we need to keep pressing forward. But Hannah was hurting. Day after day, year after year, the pain became more and more intense because Penina kept going after her. And it gets to the place here in the text, you can see it in verse 7, that finally she just breaks down and weeps and sobs and can't eat. Now normally, a husband can provide at least a little bit of comfort and reassurance during those times. At least, men, we think we can, right? But usually our goal is, well, how can I get her to stop crying so I can go back and watch the game? Poor Elkanah, he tries, but he doesn't grasp the pain and the heartache of her being misunderstood. In fact, two men in this text really misunderstood Hannah. Look at verse 8 and verse 14. Both Elkanah and Eli misinterpret or, or don't quite understand what's going on with her, and they actually make it worse by being insensitive. Isn't that what women want? for us to be insensitive on top of our misunderstanding. I have found over the years of ministry and counseling that this is probably one of, if not the most painful thing for women to be misunderstood, both socially, with family and friends, and in their relationship with their husbands. So let me talk to my fellow men first. Okay, guys, you ready? Women, just listen. I'm going to get to you in a minute. Men, it is so important, and I am preaching to the choir in front of this pulpit right now. It is so important that we listen to our wives, that we listen to the women in our lives, our daughters, our moms, our wives, our sisters in the body. Not just with our ears, not just, yeah, yeah, I heard you but that we listen with our hearts and our minds, that we listen intuitively because everybody wants to be heard and understood. It's a primal human need. But even more so, we need to love and minister to the women in our lives by being swift to hear and slow to speak. And let me add, slow to solve. Because men, we love to solve. Can I get an amen? We love to be done with. We love, well, let me fix it. And the wife's going, I don't want you to fix it. I want you to listen. And we're like, but I want to fix. I'm a fixer. We need to be swift to hear. Not dismissive. Not emotionally detached. Hearing the heart behind the words. So much of the breach in relationships and so much of the breach, especially in our marriage, comes from two problems. Assumption of motive, which leads to poor judgment, and abruptness in focusing. We want to resolve quickly, 
And that sometimes leads us to not take the time to make the emotional investment into hearing the hearts of the women in our lives. Look at Eli's judgment of a man that he, a woman that he barely knows as evidence of this. He sees her and she's standing in the corner and her mouth is moving, but nothing's coming out. And he says, brilliant conclusion, she must be drunk. Why is she? Not that she's praying. He doesn't think the best. He assumes that she's drunk, which would have been a huge sin to be drunk in the temple. So he's quick to call her out and to try to solve the problem without ever once saying, what's going on, sister? Is there something happening? Are you praying? How can I minister to you? I'm the high priest. And his conclusion is all wrong. He had his own problems. At home, his boys, Hophni and Phinehas, were in sin. The Lord was going to punish them later. He should have focused on that instead of judging her character. Now, for women, I told you I was going to get to you, right? I can only speak to what I observe and what I hear. So I want to really encourage you, and I'm using that word strongly. I want to encourage you this morning to recognize that this is one of the biggest areas of attack that the enemy is going to launch against you. And I want to encourage you and exhort you to fight it with all that you have. The devil enjoys provoking and aggravating your emotions. And he does this most often in the area of personal insecurity. I have seen this for the last six years with my daughter's class in kindergarten. We were talking about this in the car the other day. In kindergarten, there was the jockeying for position and the, and the pushing aside and the denigrating and the physical kind of shoving off to here to kind of to get the right angle. In kindergarten, I was like, in kindergarten, I didn't know what was going on. Two plus two, I was 12, I have no idea. In kindergarten, it started because the devil is always pushing against women with insecurity. Now, as men, we either don't care about this as much or we're just kind of dumb, but but we come across as self-confident and kind of emotionally indifferent about he, uh, how people feel about us. And maybe, guys, we are. I don't know. But for women, there is something innate, and I don't think I'm over-generalizing here. There is something innate that prevents women from just sloughing it off. For guys, it's like somebody said something to me to me. Okay, what's the score? For women, am I right? It's held in and it's internalized and it's held onto and that insecurity becomes more pronounced. And listen, if it's held onto and not submitted to the Lord who gives us our worth, it will become very damaging. Listen, Hannah wasn't a superwoman. She, she, she wasn't like, well, I've got pain in my life, but it's okay, it's no big deal. The text clearly says that she was profoundly grieved and profoundly bothered and that she felt inadequacy and loss and she was being ridiculed to the extent that she says to Eli, I'm oppressed in my spirit. I can't go on. I'm so torn apart. And her husband doesn't get it. What about me? Good question. Elkanah, thanks for playing. Go sit over there. Am I not worth ten kids? You don't. Mm. Mm. 
So she turns to the one, listen now, so important. She turns to the one who understands every thought of our heart. Every joy, every pain, every intent, every feeling. Not only does Jesus know it, he experienced it personally. And whatever you're going through this morning, the Lord knows what it feels like. It's one of the greatest facts of the incarnation that Jesus was in all points tested like we are, yet without sin. He was lied about, he was accused, he was opposed, he was questioned, and he was doubted. And that was just by the disciples. He was despised and rejected by man, even though he gave everything to save us. He knew the full force of the enemy's attack and he knows the depth of human emotion. And when we are hurting, listen now, there is no greater place to go than his throne of grace. That's what Hannah does. Look at the text in verse 11. She prays this beautiful, sacrificial, faith-filled prayer that will change her life and the course of the nation but I want you to think about the reason why she might not have prayed that prayer. Because there was a fourth area of pain and heartache that could have stopped her from ever getting to verse 11 if her faith and her satisfaction in the Lord had wavered. What was it? Hannah could have felt pain and heartache about being unheard by the Lord. Now you say, wait a second. She prayed and God answered Yes, but what about all the years when she prayed and God didn't say anything? What about all the times that she had gone to the Lord and felt shut out? She doesn't say that overtly. We don't get a sense of bitterness toward the Lord. We don't get resentment. But don't you know, humanly, that's what she had to feel. This was the greatest desire of her heart. And God had not answered what she had asked for and had not given that blessing, you know, how we respond in those times of waiting and uncertainty and seeking the Lord is indicative of the measure of our faith and are willing to sacrifice our will to the Lord. Will we be patient? Will we keep calling on Him? Will we persevere and be unmoved in our faith? Or will we say, I can't do it anymore? Do the enemy's constant suggestions that the Lord is not faithful and that he's not fair and that he's not doing the right thing, will, will, will they sway our confidence? Will they cause us to not be faithful? Philippians 4.11 says, I have learned to be content in all things, whether abounding in joy or whether abased and humiliated by people and circumstances. I will not waver one step in my faith. If I'm being trashed and discouraged and despondent and life stinks, or if things couldn't be more wonderful, I'm going to have the same attitude of faith and contentment in the Lord. That is spiritual maturity, and I wish I was there. Did the extent of our circumstances determine our contentment? Or do we keep going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm yours, I'm yours, I'm yours. See, Hannah, look at it, let's try to conclude. She was greatly distressed. 
She wept bitterly. One thing that struck me about the text as I studied it is that there's no indication that there was bitterness in her heart toward the Lord. Oh, she's emotionally a mess. She's weeping. She won't eat. She's pushed aside her husband who's trying his best but doesn't get it. And, and Penina's words are still ringing in her head. And she goes to the Lord and she's weeping bitterly, but it doesn't say, and she was bitter toward the Lord. It just said she was hurting. And we see the depth of her spiritual character. Look at verse 10 just for a moment. The depth of her spiritual character and the depth of her faith and how she prays to the Lord. Notice that there is no sense of entitlement. There's no demand that the Lord answer her a certain way. There's no accusation that the Lord has been unfair. There's no saying, Lord, you owe me because I've been faithful. There's no sense of resignation. There's no loss of faith. There's no saying, I just can't do it anymore. Even at the last possible moment when all seems lost, she says, I am not going to give up on the goodness and the power and the provision of God. And she calls out to the Lord in powerful faith, fully submitted to his sovereign will for her life, but also believing in the power of prayer to appeal to the heart of God and to spur him to act. And on face value, it seems like she makes a conditional deal with the Lord. Lord, if you do this, I'll do that. You ever make one of those with the Lord? I made tons of them when I was growing up and in college. It usually had something to do with, with a test I hadn't studied for, where I hadn't gone to class, or some girl that had caught my eye. Oh, Lord, if you just do this, I'll do this, and I'll serve you forever. How many times did I half-heartedly pledge to the Lord, Oh, Lord, if I could pass that test, I will be a missionary in Madagascar. I'll do it. Send me anywhere, Lord. I just have to pass. That's what it seems like she does here, but it's not. Hannah's prayer, look at it. Verse 11, let's read it one more time. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look upon the infliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget me, that you'll give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. James says the intense, fervent, unwavering prayer of a righteous person is very effective. So are we saying that we just have to be righteous and that our prayer is passionate and full of faith and God will respond? Yes, but there's another component. And this is the key to prayer that will change the way we pray and how we see the Lord answer our prayer. Hannah's prayer is effective, listen now, because she is asking for something that's not self-serving. Sometimes when we pray, we ask for the Lord to work, and then we lay out the options of what we're willing to have the Lord do. But we aren't full of complete abandonment. There's a reticence to give Him control. So we kind of say, Lord, if Your will, and I really hope Your will is this, or this, or this, or this, but not that. Don't do that. Don't, I, I don't like, uh, no, this, this, or this. I give you four options, Lord. It's so easy for you. Just answer one of those four things and we'll be great. Prayer is saying, Lord, it's all yours. I am all yours. Worship is saying, I am here to worship and give you all my praise. 
and all the glory and all the satisfaction. It's all yours. My life has been bought with a price. You own me. It's not you bought me and I'm saved and now I get to do what I want. He owns us. And it's gracious of him to not say, now you just walk around like a pawn. Complete abandonment. How much more effective would our prayer be if we prayed that way? Lord, I only want you to be in control and I only want you to get glory and I only want to serve you. Do what you want. I don't know about you, but I don't pray that way. Prayer is not for our indulgence. It's to align our hearts with the Lord. And that's what Hannah does. She asks for a son, but she says only on the condition that if you give me a son, he's yours. I'm only going to have possession for a short time, but his life is dedicated to you. She had to surrender her feelings and her emotions and her desires and her plans and her will to the Lord in asking for help. And look how the Lord honors her prayer. It says in verse 19 that the Lord remembered her. Oh, what amazing words those are this morning. The Lord remembered her. That God would even consider us. That God would even look at us. That God would even tolerate our requests. And yet it says that he delights in the praises of his people. And that he wants us to let a request be made known unto him. And that when we pray, he stores it in bowls that are a sweet scent to him. What a God he is that he would do that. So she comes and she prays. And God says, I'll answer that. And she names him Samuel. Such a way that would be an indicator of how she admitted herself to the Lord. And the Lord had been faithful to work. Listen, what's true of her is true of us this morning. Our kids are on loan from the Lord. I don't own my three children. God gave them to us on loan. I'm supposed to train them and develop them. And Julie and I are supposed to teach them about the Lord, to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And then they'll go start their own family. As parents, we have a tremendous responsibility to impact our kids for Christ so they'll impact the world for Christ. So the question is, what influence will your kids and my kids have? Because it's going to start with what they see from us. Don't you think Hannah sat Samuel down when he was a little boy and said, I want to tell you how you were born. I could have kids. Peninnah, she used to mock me. But one day I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered and gave me you. And son, you need to understand you're the Lord's. And when Samuel's about 12, he's in the temple serving, living there. Eli's the priest. And God appears one night and says, Samuel. And Samuel runs into Eli. Why'd you call me? I didn't call you. Go lay down. Samuel, why'd you call me, Eli? I didn't call you. Third time God says, Samuel. Eli says, it's the Lord. You just say to him, speak, Lord. I'm listening. Oh, if we can get to that measure of faith, that measure of willingness to yield ourselves to him and surrender our will like Hannah did and like Samuel did so that God will use us. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we thank you this morning for what you have done. We thank you for your goodness to us. 
We thank you for the incredible measure of your love and mercy that we can't quite understand, but we're so grateful for it. Lord, I pray this morning you would work on my own heart, and I pray you'd work in the hearts of every person that's here that we would surrender ourselves to you. Lord, where there is pride, where we're holding on to that in our lives, and we all are, I pray we would submit it to you this morning, right now, and yield it and say, Lord, no more, no more am I going to elevate myself. No more am I going to claim control. No more am I going to put conditions on how I serve you. I'm yours. Use me. Lord, your servants are listening this morning. We ask you to lead us. We know you'll never harm us. We know you'll never forsake us. We know you only want what is best for us in your sight and what is most pleasing to you. So I ask you this morning, Lord, for our congregation, for myself, that you would do that work. And Lord, as the enemy comes to fight us and resist us and tell us that you're not faithful, may remember how you answered Hannah of old as she poured out her heart before you and you brought her joy. Lord, you're ready to work in our midst. You already are. We pray you would continue to do that. Bless us and help us, Lord, we pray. We'll look to you and give you the glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. We have no closing song, which is good because it's late and you need to get to lunch, right? Men, let's really love and appreciate the women in our lives, not just today, okay? Will you make this pact with me that every day we'll show appreciation to them for who they are and what they bring to us because we would be lost without them. Do I hear an amen from the men? We would be lost without them. Let's really honor them today. Let's praise the Lord with how we live. We'll see you this week.